he just, it's interesting if you look at, at the breadth of his work and how much he's, he's grown as a storyteller and he commits to being a storyteller. He's not afraid to, to push in boundaries that um, other authors won't go. This is the ICCE Podcast, a quarterly news and talk show about what's new, trending, and worth discussing in the world of teaching English language arts. The ICTE Podcast is the official podcast of the Iowa Council of Teachers of English and was created to advance ICTE's mission of facilitating deep connections and professional learning for English language arts teachers of all stages. This is Episode 9, Part 2. I'm Austin Hall, and I'm coming to you from ICTE and iowaenglishteachers.org. I'm thrilled to bring you part two of our conversation with authors extraordinaire G. Neri and E.E. E. Charlton Trujillo. We cover a lot of ground in this conclusion to the interview, including how to decide on a particular medium for a book, collaborating with others, what these authors have in the works, the relationship between authors and educators, and much more. Enjoy. And please support these authors by purchasing their books and sharing them with your students. More information to come about that at the end of the pod. a lot of your books are based on true stories um you have the graphic novel yummy which i totally loved um uh, true and now you know the middle grade mystery and then um i'm johnny cash so you've got children's picture books um and then you have one about simon and garfunkel coming out this spring yes. right yeah i totally wrote that for him uh, you wrote it for him <laughs> i wrote it for him <laughs> I said he could he put wishes. his name on that. He wishes. <laughs> well, how do you decide what format and audience is best for the subject? Yeah. Um, well, one of the things I learned from filmmaking, um, I had this one guy I worked with, and he would always shoot. Like I would turn, to, I would come up with scripts and stuff that I thought were brilliant, and he would always like shoot them down. And I'm like, this is brilliant. What are you talking about? It's like. And he would always say something to the effect of, like, you're not listening to the story. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm, not I'm writing the story. Like, no, the story is writing you. You're just the, the, the vessel which the story comes through. And so you're not listening to it. Like, you're, put, you're dictating yourself as the writer, and you're trying to control it, but you're not letting it be what it wants to be. Right. And so one of the biggest lessons I learned in transitioning to a writer was to listen to the story and let it help it be what it wants to be. Yep. Um, and that's like being a parent. It's like, you know, you may want your kid to be a doctor or whatever, but you can't make that happen. Like they may end up being the lead singer in some heavy metal, you know, band, speed band or something. Um, all you could do is help raise the best person possible with all the tools they need to, to mm -hmm. do whatever they're going to do. And same thing for me as a book. Like I always think, Oh, this book is going to be this. And I'm usually, my initial instinct is usually wrong. Like I think, Oh, this is going to be a novel. And then it turns out to be a picture book or this is going to be, you know, free verse. And it turns out to be a graphic novel, you know, and so in that process, the change comes when I listen to the story and that story is telling me this is what it wants to be. And that's how I got into writing because Yummy 
started as a film and I was going to make it as a film. I was a filmmaker. And every time we got close to making it, that story kept telling me like there's something wrong with this. And it kept stopping me from doing it. People wanted to do it, but I was the one stopping. And then it took me several years to figure out what it wanted to be. It wanted to be a graphic novel. And there were a whole host of reasons for that. And, but I had never done a graphic novel. Um, like who was I, but then a friend of mine uh, was doing a graphic novel and he showed me, and he showed me like, you start with this, there's a script and then you lay it out like a shooting script and then you do the drawing. And when I looked at his script, it looked like a screenplay, you know, a shooting script, it looked like a shooting script. And then I realized like, oh, you know, graphic novels are very cinematic. They're very connected to movies. They have a different flow and feeling that a novel might have. Um, and then it was like the light bulb went off. I was like, oh, this should be this because mm-hmm. there was something very innocent about Yummy and comics are a very innocent format, you know? And uh, there was something about reaching kids who don't like to read but would read a comic, you know? And there was something about a movie being so immediate and so visceral, like something this heavy would just automatically be overwhelming. Like you would want to kill yourself. But comics, being a child's medium, being innocent, you have certain expectations like superheroes and fantasy. You throw this in, it allows you to experience it without overwhelming you, but it surprises you because it's not the normal format to tell that story. And so it kind of is even more powerful. And so the only thing I had to get over was like, I had never done one before, but I always tell kids, like I realized, you know, I really wasn't taking the chance because I'd never done one before. So if I tried and I failed, I would still be the exact same guy who had never done a graphic novel. But if I tried it and succeeded, then I would suddenly have this whole other medium that I could work with. And so it's just like, well, just try it. You got really nothing to lose, you know? It felt like the right thing. And as soon as I went into it, everything kind of opened up and everything was like green lights, you know? It's like, you know, now I just listen, I totally give myself to the story. Like, I don't know what it's going to be or what format it's going to be, but I know it's going to tell me in the process. I may start off in a different way, but it will correct itself, you know, and that will be the right way to tell that story. Did it take you a while to get to a point where you sort of listened to the story? Like, w- when you figured out, oh, this is what I was trying to make it, and then... Yeah, I mean, you know, I realized early on that once I gave myself over, things happened quickly. Like when things were battle is when I was trying to force it to be a certain thing that I had in my head. Like, this is going to be this way, (laughs) come hell or high water. And, you know, when you see it working after a few times, you realize you just got to give yourself over to it. And it sure. will be, it'll be okay. <laughs> well, that's cool. You don't want to answer that one? No, well, that was yours. Say, it, was, it was for you. That is oh. part of the creative process, though. Like, I, I knit. And when people will ask me what I'm knitting, and I'm like, I don't know yet. Right. That's my, like, but you've got so many rows. And I'm like, I know, but I still don't know what it's going it, to That's what my um, wife says. That's the exact right thing. Because it's like, there's something about it that grabs me a feeling, a tone, a a moment, I don't know what it is yet, but I know it's the right 
to dive into it. Getting just, into the medium. I'm just seeing what this yarn wants to be. I'm right, just getting exactly. to it exactly. till it decides, all right, we're going to be some mittens this time. It's a tuxedo. <laughs> <laughs> that is way too much attention. I, I have a short attention span for that. So. Yeah, I'm with you, Greg, 100%, man. Yeah, yeah. that's, um, I think, I think the times that I've made the, the, the biggest mistakes, things that I've worked on that haven't succeeded, it's been when I've tried to force my agenda of what I want the story to be. And that's, that's the number one thing that, you know, I really try to say to young people is just kind of surrender to the story. And they're like, well, what does that mean? It's like that moment you feel compelled to say something when you sit down and you have to write something, whether you heard dialogue or you saw a photo or a painting or a flash of lighting, whatever it is that ignited the imagination or the experience. I said, in, in that moment, when you, when you feel that, write that and don't, don't get all editorial, don't judge it, but surrender to the story. Let the story be what it's gonna be. It will surprise you. I mean, a, a really fascinating thing was watching Greg's experience with his sequel of True and Now and hearing about that process. And of course, I don't wanna really have him tell that story because you know how Greg is, but, <laughs> but no, but seriously, it's like, he was really in surrender with that. And, and I, the thing that I noticed is he was cracking out pages left and right on that. And it was, it was coming to him like eight or 10 pages a day or more. And it was just really a, a big flow. And he was in total surrender. Whereas he and I tried to work on a project together and he had this really great Bible and we, we worked on it together and stuff. We were trying to force an idea is what it felt like to me. That we were trying to force an idea of what each of us we're thinking it should be about and it was losing that uh, organic piece of it which is you you can't force a story into i don't believe you can force a story to be something it's not meant to be right. um, also, that we doesn't, were trying to do something yeah. together so we we're trying yeah. to create an artificial form that would allow right. that to happen right and so to do that we had to create certain kind of rules yeah. Which is like, you know, like, we don't what's that we about? both don't do rules. Yeah. You know, but we had to go through it. And I think yeah. we both realized at the end, like we had the same reaction, like it mm -hmm. against both of our, our processes. Even if right. we wanted to do it, like it was just there was something artificial about yeah. trying to make it work so two people could do this one project. Right. And uh, that doesn't it wasn't organic, even though yeah. we wanted to to work. And that doesn't mean that I think that Greg and I could never write together. I think that project and the way we were coming at it didn't succeed. Whereas you have something like Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. And David and Rachel came together on that. And that, that works well. Like, it works really well. It's fluid, you know. And so I don't know their process, but I know that Greg's and mine are so similar that they actually kind of worked against each other in this right. thing we were I, trying to do, you know. I did realize, because afterwards I was – I was um, looking at Patty Smith and, and they, Patty Smith and Sam Shepard did a project together that was really total improv um, piece wow. where Sam said, Hey, let's, let's do a play. Let's write a play together. <laughs> and she's like, I don't know how to write a play. It's like, yeah, you know how to talk and you know how to tell a story. So here's a typewriter. We're just going to sit down for three days and I'm going to write something. I'm going to pass it to you. You're going to write something and I'm going to pass it back. And then, you know, they ended up performing it together on stage. So it kind of like they could speak the parts that they wrote and it was kind mm -hmm. of this weird, unusual thing and set up. <laughs> so it worked in that context, you know, whereas if they seriously tried to meld Patti Smith with 
Sam Shepard, like it wouldn't fly unless it was this totally weird thing. Yeah. And it's really fun to read dialogues, I think, or conversations. Dialogue's like the easiest thing. Yeah. You know, just to have make, once the character starts talking and you realize who they are, like, you just, I just put two characters together and they will do a whole scene. Like, I'm not even writing it, they're just talking. (laughs) And I'm coughing down what they're saying. Well, that goes back to that idea of being the vessel and right. just letting it, letting the story do what it's going to do. You know, and at the same time, that all sounds very meta and very Zen and Buddha. And, but the, on the flip side of that, on the practical side for, you know, educators and for young people is, you know, part of it is, you know, you know, if we take, go back to film real quickly, Greg and I both worked in film. We've, you know, we've watched a lot of film. And that storytelling has really seeped in. So for young people, it's, it's all about reading stories. It's about watching movies or going to YouTube, if that's what your medium is. But to, to look and say, how does this story connect? Beginning, middle, and what makes it interesting? Like to have a sense of how do you progress towards something powerful, you know? And, but, but, you know, and, and, you know, but, and, you know, and, and to differentiate between what is powerful and what is more bubble gum or cotton candy in a right. narrative. Because, you know, they exist on equal, on opposite sides of the spectrum. Yeah. And that makes me think of the film that we made together because ah. um, this is interesting because what happened was, so I wrote True and Nell, and then I was invited to speak in Monroeville, Alabama yep. at the courthouse, you know, <clears throat> the courthouse. Atticus Finch, you know, lived. And then she had the, like I told her I was going and she's like, oh, you should totally film that you gotta film it you and totally i was it. like well i guess and then he either volunteered and then i suggested it to my publisher and they were like okay here's some money go do it yeah and i was like okay and then we totally improved it like the original idea was just you were going to film me talking, I think. Yeah, and but then, it just got better. It just we yeah, too but, much. But see, yeah. this is this goes to this yeah. thing because we both inherently knew, I think, what the story was. Like, yep. any normal person would have written that out. Like, you're going to film a 10-minute, even if yeah. it's a documentary, you're going to plan it out. Yeah. You're going to write it out. You're going to break yeah. it down, da-da-da. And, and my approach was, okay, I know cer- there are certain places Right. The real places is from To Kill a Mockingbird. We're just going to do setups there. Mm-hmm. I didn't write a single thing. We would go to a location. She would set up. Mm-hmm. I would look at it and say, okay, I'm going to start here. And then I'm going to do this here. Mm-hmm. And then I would just tell the story of that scene, of that place. Yeah. Without ever having written a single thing down. Just right. talking. And then we got that. We talked a lot. We filmed, the, we filmed the talk and then we sat down in yeah. the bookstore where I was doing a signing and I filled in some other stuff. And then it like totally works, you know, it totally works. It seems like it's totally scripted to most people, uh, yeah, it but it was not. totally improv, the complete thing, everything, the whole setup, the whole structure, the, anything I say is totally improv on the moment. But it but seems the like other, yeah. totally written. It was, it was totally improv and the irony is, that the part that I went to really film, which was his speech, is barely in it. It's barely in the It's barely in it because it's all about these other things that are part of the story of this community, which were the right. obviously a part of the story of what which he had been is, Which is exactly yeah. the way we write because if we were stubborn, we would have stuck to that Because no, no. that's the big thing. Like me talking in the choir, that's the big thing. 
that's what it's all about. You know, we would have like yeah. never done the other stuff, but because yeah. we were in the place, you could feel the place, things were happening. It was story was everywhere. Yeah. You, it was very organic and very intuitive and it just happened. And that's the best part of it. You know, mm -hmm. the part that was pre-planned is the worst part of it. It's the worst part of it. And, and of course, we did find a bullet by my rental car. I found it. He claims that he found it. I found the bullet by the rental car. Yeah. And what did you say about the bullet? What was it you said? I said, well, that's a long story. But no, but just give the, give the line. It was basically, it was, we, we figured out that the, uh, Harper Lee's lawyer, who's the one everybody's scared of, who runs that town like a mob town and well people were afraid to say things on camera because of her you know and then it turned out she owned the hotel that we were staying at so when we walked out to the car the first day and there was a brand new like 44 caliber gold bullets standing by at the door of the car and I added the part and then it said uh, Scout was here yeah on it like, yeah he, he likes to tell the story that you know he found the bullet, which was not accurate, because I was filming, and I filmed the moment, and he was way over there by the entrance. But you know, yeah. you know, for for dramatic purposes, Greg was there. He he, you know, he pushed me back to, sure. to you know protect the helpless woman, and he reached down and he picked up that bullet like it was right. like literally, you know, CSI. And he's looking for at me. it. And he, says, and he goes, "Scout was." <laughs> so that you know, that's that's the dramatic version. As opposed yeah. to, hey, dude, there's a bullet by my car, right? Which is not as compelling. Not as compelling. Uh, for each of you, um, what are your favorite books or characters from each other's work? Oh man, mm. he doesn't read my work, so <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna be a real problem. Well, you know, I, you know, I would say, you know, Fat Angie has to be the one because that's the one we always talk about. Sure. And that's the reference. Um, so we're always like, almost like, what would Fat Angie do? <laughs> how, would, how would Fat Angie play this? You know, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, for Greg, you know, that's really hard because I actually do read his books. And um, mostly because I make movies for him. So I uh, little documentaries. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, Yummy is a classic Greg book for a lot of reasons. And um, you know, and, you know, of course, he, his, his bragging rights that his wife probably still doesn't believe is that it's the most stolen book from the library, um, wherever it exists. But uh, it's, it's a powerful story. I'm going to say, though, that the new True Anel, um, the sequel, I think might be my favorite. I got to read it literally when he finished the draft. And I was like, you wrote this? <laughs> you sure my name doesn't go on the bottom? Because this looks like my writing. So um, I have to say, you know, I mean, because he just, he just, it's interesting if you look at, at the breadth of his work and how much he's, he's grown as a storyteller and he commits to being a storyteller. He's not afraid to, to push in boundaries that um, other authors won't go. And I think that's part of his sort of Johnny Cash outsider motif. You can tell from his hair that he does, uh, you know, he's really into that look, but um but no, but in all seriousness, um, I, think, I think the sequel is, is up there. I mean, Yummy was definitely my entry to getting to know Greg. That time he came to see my movie, I, I knew who G. Neary was. I didn't know who Greg Neary was. Right. So he introduced him as Greg. I didn't know who he was. And so 
was like, hey, I've been hanging out with this guy. His name's Greg, da, 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 da. And then I finally went to go look at the author table, the books. And I was like, all these books are by some Geneary. And I'm like, I know Geneary. And they're like, yeah, it's uh, that guy over there. And I'm like, the bald guy? That guy? I've been hanging out with him. He's so cool. So, so you know. But, but yeah, I mean. And, of course, my favorite, my favorite books are the ones – you haven't written yet but that we've talked about yes yes, you know, yes. or brainstormed on like oh you yeah, should totally yeah. do that book i know or you need to do that book or yeah that's the book yeah and that's where he and i are also similar is it don't be fooled by this man he may look like a like a five ten book pony but let me tell you in the in in his office wherever it is whether it's in canada or florida wherever he is and in the, in, in the you know, great Alaskan wilderness, wherever he is, he carries, he has up at least six other books at different stages. And, and he's got that front page with like the poster and he's got the whole feeling for these books. And that's where he and I are the same in the sense that I have, I counted the other day. There it is. Polo days. Polo cool. days is one of them, Cool. which I'm so excited. Um, I have 23 books in different stages. Oh yeah. And I thought, wow, oh, yeah. if I could and just, I'm at that stage where I literally have like six or seven and it's just like killing me because, you know, yeah, you can't do them all. You can't do them all. One's going to pop. Maybe two will follow, but a lot of them are going to maybe never happen or they might happen in 10 years. Or they, what are you, but, you know, no. but they're there. They're there. You've written, you know, Sometimes you've written a lot. Sometimes you've written a little. Sometimes you've just done the research. You have it kind of laid out, and it's just waiting for you to do. And so that's you know that's my heartache right now is like knowing that there's five at least five I could totally jump into right now. Right. And it's like yeah. And that's our that's our <laughs> maybe I could do two, you know, right now or whatever. But we'll see. I yeah. always have this dream like, okay, as soon as this is done. Boom, I just got to knock them out. One, two, three, but it never happens. <laughs> never happens. It's always like one a year. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, he wants to be as good of a writer as me, but you know. Yeah, man. But <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. It is hard. Yeah. It is hard. So we've kind, of, we've kind of alluded a couple times of, um, you know, some upcoming projects that you guys are working on. You just... Mm -hmm. Showed Polo Days and, and E. You had referenced the sequel to Fat Angie earlier. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else in the pop in the, uh, in the pipeline? Or? Um, yes, uh, I'll I'll lead off. So I have the Fat Angie sequel coming. Then I have another <laughs> book after that that is currently untitled, and then that'll be out. And so two books in 2018, and then um, I have another one soon to go out. So of those 23 projects, there'll be another one coming out. So why? Uh, it's it's probably the darkest piece I've written and um, that I've wanted to write for a very long time. And so I'm excited about that. And then interestingly enough, I have a middle grade that I'm working on that um, Greg will be very excited about that I, I can't really talk about. But but um, space. shut up, Greg. And um, but it has something to do with space. But anyway, so there's there's two in 2018 and then we'll see how 2019 shapes out once I, I push out these other two, the middle grade and the way. So, yeah. And, uh, and everything that Greg prints, sadly, from here on out, I mean, you should all know that my name's not there, but I'm really the co-writer. So, I mean, <laughs> I like to give him the room to feel important because, you know, he's older, you know, you respect your elders, but, you know. Um, I have three books coming out in the next yeah. 
year, but they've been done a long time. Well, so it's yeah. not, it's deceptive. Except for True Now, which is the one coming out. You just finished that. Um, in three or so weeks. October 24th. Um, this October 24th, uh, True Now, Christmas Tale. That's the latest thing I wrote that is coming out. And then the Simon and Garfunkel ones, which is yeah. a picture book about the childhood friendship of Simon and Garfunkel, um, is kind of told in the same format as my Johnny Cash book. You know, I finished writing that like years ago, years ago. But, you know, it takes a long time to do the illustrations and to right. production and all that. That'll be out in spring. And then a graphic novel that I also finished years ago has gone through a whole ordeal, which I can't get into. Um, it looks like it's going to see light of day next fall. So. Really? Really? And that's called Grand Theft Horse. And it's Sweet. a true story about my cousin, the horse thief, uh, who's kind of a modern day outlaw out in California. And uh, kind of the Aaron, Aaron Brockovich of... Uh, for horses and uh, you know protection of animals. Um, I cannot wait for that to come out. Sincerely, it's so good. And the then, illustrations are so amazing. Yeah, yeah. And then beyond that, you know, I'm going to Antarctica in about two weeks. Show off. Two weeks. Show awesome. Off. And there's <laughs> a book coming out of that. Then there's this the Polo Days one I showed you, which is a kind of a, a sequel to Ghetto Cowboy. Yep. So now is there anything going on with Ghetto Cowboy that you feel like you can share at this point? Um, well, it might be a movie, but you know, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, so that was an option for a movie, but it's an unusual setup, so it has a much better chance of being a movie than most yeah. option it movies. And and it's a strong team working on it. It's a very strong team yeah. working on his film. So, so we'll see. I have hopes for it. I won't drop any names. Yeah, I mean, you know, don't. But Denzel. I mean, if you want to drop mine, you can drop my name in there, right? Because I get to be like a, I get to be in that, right? Like a cameo. Sure, you could be. Uh... Careful, careful, <laughs> careful. You know, that's really. You know what? This is this is the problem with friendships. See here, there's always a scene for your BFF. <laughs> Careful, right. I am that person. Somebody needs to work in the chili, uh, the Philly cheese shop. Uh huh. I I can do that. I can do that. I feel like it's a calling. <laughs> you, want, you want extra onions on that? <laughs> okay, wait. Let me try. It. Let me try. It. Okay, hold on. Let me try it. It's like an audition. Go. Uh, you want extra onions on that? How's that? That's pretty good. Is that going to work? Nice. Good. Okay. Because that's what educators want to hear, right? On a podcast is two people talking about ordering extra onions. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, what, is there anything that you haven't, you know, gotten out of us that would be helpful to educators or kids oh, or yeah. whoever it's going to be your we audience? talk about educators. Uh, you can't talk nasty about them, though. You have to be that's nice. Bastard. <laughs> hey, watch your language. <laughs> G-rated. G Snap. Get it. Nice. <laughs> I owe my career to educators and librarians. Exactly. Well, <laughs> one of the th one of the things we've at, we asked uh, Amy and Andrew, and and we're I mean, as English teachers, I know I'm always uh, interested in from the author's perspective. 
Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts as far as, um, you know, getting kids excited to read, particularly those who aren't? Greg, earlier you had referenced, you know, with the, the yummy graphic novel for, for maybe kids who weren't necessarily buying into reading. Uh, tips from the author's point of view, maybe. Well, you know, the single greatest thing that teachers and librarians do, from my perspective, is they recognize their students and mm -hmm. they recognize, like, what they're not getting, like if they're not into reading or maybe never read a book. And then, you know, what's happened with me a lot from the very beginning, they recognize like something I wrote would be perfect for that kid and then actually get that book into their hands. Right. Um, and so that's like the single strongest act for me because, you know, there are like so many stories. It's like possible to be impossible to like count them all and how many times it's happened. And then that act turning that kid into a reader, you know, starting with me and then want, like, what else did he do? I want that book. I want that book. And then, you know, well, if you like that book, you'll like this right. author. And if you like that author, you like that. And then it's just like a stepping stone to, you know, Shakespeare or whatever, and that happens. Um, Wait a minute, are you telling me they go from yummy to Shakespeare? They went from- Are you, are you the lead path <clears throat> to that? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Or anybody <laughs> who starts, you know, writing with certain voice that may, doesn't get written yeah. uh, a lot into uh, <clears throat> literature, you know, voices that they recognize, voices that are like theirs, um, and that's a comment I get a lot, you know, like kids will say, oh, this is my story, or they talk like me, and things like that. And then once they see themselves in a book, then it's easier for them to hear other voices in books, you know, and then they just can kind of move along. Uh, but you got to start somewhere. You got to yeah. show them something that will change their perception of what a book is and what a book can do. Um, and I just see that all all the time, but it always happens because somebody is the the matchmaker, you know, who recognizes that student and their personality and what they might respond to, and then tries to put different things in to to light that fire. I think um, also what I would add is um, I don't know if it would be specifically for English teachers, but is is that when you're working with your students and doing that amazing thing that you do as teachers, which is going in there every single day, especially when it's hard. Yeah. And, but to remember that something is that these young people, even the ones that seem that they don't wanna be inspired, the one in the back who seems that they don't wanna listen, that they wanna cut up, every single student yeah. has a story. They have a story in them. And if you can find a way to reflect back to them, that not only are they storytellers, but that their story matters, that that is one more step to getting them to go to a library and open a book and reading. And I think, I think when young people are validated and feel like that what they say matters, it's a thing I hear most often in, at school visits is, is it, it doesn't matter what I say, it doesn't matter what I feel, my experience is not valid. And the validation comes from reading because we read to know we're not alone, right? We get that validation, but, but you have to get them there and some kids, it may begin with giving them a prompt or an opportunity for them to be heard in a way that maybe they don't feel like they have 
in their homes or amongst their peers or even in their own head. And I think that does lead to reading. I think when they say, when you say you're a storyteller, what you say has power. And also look at Jean Neary's book and look at, you know, Trujillo's book and look at A.S. King's or Andrew's or, you know, Nikki Grimes, whoever book is there and in and, and matching those books, Greg is on, you have to match the book to the kid to lead them like along the way. But I think also a component is to, for them to see that what they say, what they feel, what they want to put into the world matters. And I think that that gets lost sometimes because we, we look at that kid who clowns in the back and we think, okay, I can't do, okay, I got to work with all these others and that one's out. That's the one you got to get most of all. Right. You've got to get good, that kid. And a good teacher that we see all the time recognizes that and knows that that is the best student. Yes. Get. And that student not only is the best student to get, that student is totally gettable. Yes. Um, and are, I'm just like the most responsive and the most into it. Like once you reach out yeah, that's the and one. you talk to them on the same level and you're not talking at them um, and, you're not, and you're listening to what they have to say, they're the ones that just like, boom, like blow up in the, the best, possible, best possible way. You know, it's just like, and I, I've worked with so many great teachers who know that, you know, yeah, so they're they do. able to work it. Um, and so I always go to, <laughs> you know, I like to go to the room that's full of those kids or, yep. you know, I always like, work, that's, we like working with the outsider kids, the troubled kids, whatever, yeah. the kids that nobody else wants to work with because they're going to be the best kids and the, the turnaround is going to be the most powerful and the things that come out of them are just going to inspire you back even more. Yeah. And I, I think that's what it comes down to. I think that's what it comes down to is, uh, yeah. What he said. <laughs> what he said. He just you like know? dropped the mic. He did. I had nowhere to go. I was like, I can't even find the mic. You know, I was like, where is it? Mom? <laughs> Oh, it's been a year since you visited my school, you guys. Oh, I know. Wow. What do you mean, oh, really? You don't remember? We have a t-shirt. <laughs> my daughter wears that shirt around. Yeah. With your head on it? Is that With great? My head on it. Do people say, is that your dad? Like, yeah, he's in a band. It's called Rock the Word. That's right. <laughs> it's a great band. But, I mean, you know, just about that real quickly. I mean, here's this thing that we, you know, Ginny and I and Carrie came together and we brought... You know, Andrew and Greg and Amy along for this thing in your, in, in your community for two days. Um, the powerfulness of that experience, you can't say that the room was full of, of what we call outsiders or at risk, you know, because here's the thing, though, every kid is at risk in some way. You can't just say, okay, well, it's, you know, just because this kid is, let's say, Caucasian and, you know, cisgender and da 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 da, like we go through all these things, this kid is fine. Every, there were kids in that, that we met there that you would look on the street and think this is the most collected, composed, great kid. But underneath, right. there's all these other things going on. And going there and getting to do this, you know, pump them up about writing and literature and reading and showing them that, that authors are, you know, well, we are rock stars. But that, 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 it's, that storytelling is powerful. And getting to do that in community, I still get messages from your students. I still get 
you know, they'll send me writing. I just got something the other day from one of your students mm. that I was going to afford to, <laughs> but you know, and, and that, you know, but I, to see their journey and how, you know, and, and, you know, once we leave, we don't know everything, but to go there and to be part of that. And it was so electrifying to be in a room with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids and, and to do each of us have our own strengths in what we do and to bring that together into one space. And it was like a pep rally for two days about books and writing and storytelling and really saying to kids, you know, you're the vehicle for change in this world. You're the vehicle. You might be the next Essie Hinton, you know, you might be that you might be the next Sanders, you know, Cisneros, you know, you know, you might be the next Jason Reynolds or, you know, whatever that is. And, and for them to see themselves and go, wow, I can do that too. I can be that. I mean, that was explosive. That was the most amazing time. And to be with a group of authors who wanted to be there because they want to see young people be heard, you know, and I think that's, that's just powerful. Except for Greg. He didn't really, you know, <laughs> he just ordered room service the entire time. That's right. <laughs> He's like, give me the t-shirt. Exactly. All right. All right, we'll let y'all go. All right, everybody. Have awesome. Thank you, guys. This has been awesome. All right. All right. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to the ICTE podcast. The podcast is written, produced, and hosted by me, Austin Hall. Music for this episode by Steve Combs from the Free Music Archive. Please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite streaming platform. You can now listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and many other podcast streaming platforms. We'd also love for you to rate and review the ICTE podcast. That will allow others to discover us. Thank you to Jen Paulson, G. Neri, and E.E. E. Charlton Trujillo for their contributions to the episode. For more information about G. Neri, visit his website, www.gregneri.com. That's www.gregneri.com. There you'll be able to find all sorts of information about his work, including his latest, a graphic biography titled Grand Theft Horse. Here's a blurb for the book from his website. Gail Ruffu was a rookie trainer known for her unconventional methods and ability to handle dangerous horses. When she became part owner of an untamed thoroughbred named Urgent Envoy, everything changed. After Urgent Envoy showed real promise, her co-owners forced Gail to speed up training and race him too early, causing the horse to develop a hairline fracture. Refusing to drug the horse to keep it running, Gail lost Urgent Envoy to her co-owners, who pushed the horse even harder. One more race would kill him. When nobody heeded her warnings, Gail had to act. So, on Christmas Eve, she rescued her own horse. A modern-day outlaw, Gail evaded private investigators and refused to give the horse up. Blacklisted by the racing world, she learned the law at night to take on a powerful L.A. attorney determined to crush her in court. As she stood up for the humane treatment of racehorses, she also faced down the system that caused their demise. In this gorgeous graphic biography, G. Neri, author of the acclaimed Yummy and True and Nell, retells the life of his cousin Gail, a pioneer who challenged the horse racing world for the sake of one extraordinary horse. With illustrations by brilliant newcomer Corbin Wilkin, it is a must-read for horse lovers everywhere. Some other G. Neri nuggets that you need to be aware of. 
Uh, he's currently working on two Antarctic comic projects, one about Antarctic dinosaurs and the other a comic travelogue. Uh, the sequel to his book Ghetto Cowboy and a c- companion graphic novel to Yummy about the south side of Chicago today are also in the works. And Ghetto Cowboy the movie is also set to shoot this summer, the summer of 2019. Now for more information about E.E. E. Charlton Trujillo, visit her website, www.bigdreamswrite.com. Again, that's www.bigdreamswrite.com. There, you'll be able to find all sorts of information about her work, including her upcoming sequel to Fat Angie, titled Fat Angie Rebel Girl Revolution. Here's the blurb for the book from her site. Sophomore year has just begun, and Angie is miserable. Her girlfriend, KC, has moved away. Her good friend Jake is keeping his distance, and the resident bully has ramped up an increasingly vicious and targeted campaign to humiliate her. An over-the-top statue dedication planned for her sister, who died in Iraq, is almost too much to bear. And it doesn't help that her mother has placed a symbolic empty urn on their mantle. At the ceremony, a soldier hands Angie a final letter from her sister, including a list of places she wanted the two of them to visit when she got home from the war. With her mother threatening to send Angie to a treatment center, and the situation at school becoming violent, Angie enlists the help of her estranged childhood friend, Jamboree. Along with a few other outsiders, they pack into an RV and head across the state on the road trip Angie's sister did not live to take. It might be just what Angie needs to find a way to let her sister go and find herself in the process. In addition to Fat Angie Rebel Girl Revolution, which drops March 5th and can be pre-ordered at IndieBound, Amazon, and wherever books are sold, E's documentary, At Risk Summer, is now on sale with an educational guide. You can purchase the film at http colon slash slash vimeo.com slash on demand slash at risk summer. Thanks again, ICTE. Until next time, this has been Austin Hall for the ICTE podcast, the official podcast of the Iowa Council of Teachers of English.